Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a pew uh, Bible from the seat in front of you. You can find Romans chapter 2 on page 883 in a pew Bible. So grab that, turn there, uh, dial in, and let's, uh, let's get, get rolling. Uh, who, who remembers where, we, yeah, where, where we've come so far in the book of Romans? We're in Romans chapter 2, Romans 1. What did we, what did we discuss last week? The, the, the judgment of God that's coming against uh, the unrighteousness and sin of, of humanity, right? So we're, we're working out, we're kind of out working out Paul's thesis that he established in Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. So Romans 1, 16 through 17, Paul kind of says, the, the, the gospel is how God saves sinners, right? God, there, there is a righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require. And, and in the gospel, God reveals that righteousness to sinners. God imputes that righteousness to sinners so that they can be saved on the basis of that righteousness when they trust in Jesus. That's Paul's thesis of his letter. That's what he's going to be. The entire book of Romans is Paul uh, proving that thesis and discussing the implications of that thesis and handling uh, objections to that, that thesis. God saves sinners who trust in Christ. They don't deserve it, but they look to Jesus in faith, and God saves them. Now, the first step to proving that thesis, that God saves sinners through their trusting in Christ, is to establish that human, human beings do in fact need to be saved. They need saving, that they are, as it stands, prior to God saving them, they are under the condemnation and wrath of God. So Paul handles that in Romans chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1 we saw last week, he, he deals largely with Gentiles, which again, in, t- in today's parlance would just be people that don't have the appearance of religious faithfulness, people that appear far from God, thieves, drunkards, prostitutes, tax collectors, people who have never darkened the door of a church. Romans 1, Paul is dealing with the reality that they stand under the just condemnation of God. They were created in God's image. They live in a world that God created. And so God is right and just to hold them accountable for their sin and their rebellion. That's Romans 1. Romans 2 Paul turns his attention away from the Gentiles, away from those who appear far from God, and to the nation of Israel, to those who, again, in today's you know, parlance would be people who identify as, as Christians, people who go to church, people who send their kids to, to Christian school. Right In Romans 2, Paul is turning his attention to these people. He's saying, I've already dealt with the overtly sinful non-religious crowd. I've showed that they're guilty. Now I'm going to deal with the religious crowd and show that they too are guilty, thereby establishing that every single human being, all of us, stand guilty before God and we are deserving of his judgment and his punishment. So we're going to look today at God's judgment against the unrighteousness and, and moralism of, uh, of, of religious, religious people. He says, therefore, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
from passing judgment on one another or on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and, you, and yet you do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on our time together in your word. We pray that you would uh, minister to us and give us grace through it. We pray that we could help see we pray that you would help us to see Jesus in it. We pray that we could be conformed to the the likeness of Christ as we sit under it. It's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Paul used that same language in Romans 1, saying that the, uh, that the Gentiles are without excuse because they live in a world that was created by God. They can see the evidence of God's sovereign, the, the, the evidence of God's characteristics. He can see them. In, so, so the Gentiles are without excuse. And he's continuing here. He's saying, it's not just that you can look outside and look around you and see the evidence of God's glory in the creation that he has made, and that should prompt you to contemplate the, the, the reality that a creator may exist, right? That's one way that we are rendered without excuse, but another way is not to look outside of ourselves, out at the creation, but to look inside ourselves and look inside at our own hearts, Look at how you understand the world. Look at how you interact with others. Look at how you react to other people. Um, and, and, and that, looking at your own heart and looking at how you interact and react should prompt you to think about God. For in passing judgment on, one, on another, you condemn yourself, the judge, because you practice these very same things. So he's saying, when you... Render judgment against someone else, whether you, whether, you real, if you, whether you realize it or not, when you render a judgment against someone, when you say, they shouldn't have done that, that was wrong. I, you know, when, when you do that, you are evidencing that you, whether you realize it or not, whether you think it or not, you believe that there's a God who exists and that God will hold us accountable for how we live. You're acknowledging that there are moral standards that we should all live by. You may very well say that you don't believe in God. 
you might even think and be able to pass a lie detector test that you don't think that God exists. But when, when push comes to shove, we all have a deep down, you know, we all have knowledge that God exists, and that knowledge can be born out of how we react, right? The, the, the moral standards that we feel other people should be held to when they, right? You might act, you might act like a relativist. You might act like a, a person who thinks there is no God. You might act like a person who thinks there's no such thing as, a moral, as moral accountability. But you react like a Puritan pastor from the 17th century. Right? You react when someone sins against you. You all of a sudden, all of the, the moral relativity and secular vocabulary that you were using goes out the window. I had a, I had a professor... Uh, so I went to a, a state, like a public college, state, a state university, and I studied philosophy and religion at that college. And so um, I encountered my share of philosophy professors, you know, these guys that like to sit around and kind of pontificate of all, the, all, all this abstract philosophical jargon. And I had one professor, I suspect that every secular university philosophy program has this one guy. The one guy who he thinks it's his job to make every Christian student in his class, like, punt the faith. He, it's like, he, that's his, like, greatest joy in life is, like, tying 18-year-old Christians up in knots and making them admit that everything that they believe and everything that they've been taught, you know, is, is maybe is not right. If you, were to, if you were to walk into his class and say, I came here a Christian, but now I, I don't, I'm not a Christian anymore. That would be like the greatest joy that this guy could have, right? I suspect that every college probably has a guy like that. This guy certainly did. And so he, yeah, all of his classes, it was all about, you can't know that there's a God. There's no such thing as right or wrong. You know, just a lot of, a lot of this stuff. One day, this is a true story. One day, someone hit his car. A, a guy hit that guy's car in the parking lot. And so he... Uh, comes out, he like walks out to his car, he drives this fancy car, and some, you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old student with a, a beater, you know, jalopy car hit his car. And what do you think of that, what do you think that this like atheist, moral, relativist professor did? Called the police. I was like, this is unjust. This, I've, my rights have been violated. Like, I, you know, this is, you know, I, like, this, what this guy did was wrong. I deserve, I need to be made whole. The right thing to happen right now is for this to be fixed, and the wrong thing is for this to be ignored and to be, to be left, you know, right? And he, he, he might act. He might say and act as if there's no God, there's no such thing as, as morality, but you react like you're, the way that you react, the way that you judge others, evidences that you believe certain things about God and about morality and about how the universe works. And so Paul is saying when you react, when you judge others, you're condemning yourself, you're rendering yourself without excuse because you are evidencing that you believe that there's a moral accountability for all of us and there's a God who oversees that moral accountability and you yourselves, you practice the very same Things. You do the things that you judge others for doing. 
So, so no one, I mean, you can say all you want that you don't think that there's any such thing as accountability for a moral standard against a, a, a God who um, is, is sovereign, but we all will be rendered without excuse just by virtue of how we interact with others. Don't judge others, right? When you judge others, you bring judgment and condemnation on yourself. This is similar language to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? We've probably all heard it. Uh, don't judge not lest you be judged, right? The standard that you use to judge others is the standard that you yourself will be judged by. That's Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Similar principle, slightly different application, right? Jesus' application in Matthew 7 is, same principle, uh, the standard that you judge others by, you will be judged by, right? That's the principle. And so Jesus' application is, give it a rest on judging other people. Take it easy. Like, let God judge other people. How about you stop judging other people because all you're doing is making it worse on yourself. Paul's application is, same principle, the standard that you use for judging others, you will be judged by. But his application is not so much stop judging other people, although he will say, like, in Romans 14, he says that, more or less. But here the application seems to be the standard that you judge other people by, you will be judged by. So therefore, it's not don't judge other people as much as it's do judge yourself, right? Do look inward at yourself and, and you realize that as you judge other people, you're condemning yourself. So as you judge other people, turn that scrutiny, turn that judgmental attitude inward on your own self, inward on your own heart, and, and realize that you are guilty of the same things that you are judging other people for. So do judge yourself and let that judgment of yourself, you know, bring about humility uh, and, and a, a teachable spirit before God and, and others. Verse 2, he says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So as much as you'd like to think that God's judgment will not fall on you, as much as you'd like to think that the rules don't apply to you, as much as you'd like to think that the problem is with other people and not with you, the fact of the matter is we are all guilty and God's judgment is going to come on all of us. It's going to come on the ones who are quote-unquote good, relatively speaking, and it's going to come on the ones who are quote-unquote bad, relatively speaking. None of us have a claim to special treatment or special status before God. And remember, Paul here in chapter 2 is speaking specifically to the nation of Israel because they were the ones who did that. They were the ones who rendered judgments on... Right, the, 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 uh, Romans chapter 2, right, like, by this point, uh, it, Jewish people, members of the nation of Israel, are reading Paul's letter, and they are like, hearty amen, right? Like, this is, preach it, Paul. Like, go, go get them. Like, go, you know, but man, I mean, G, Paul is, is leveling those who are, you know, exchange the truth of God for a lie. Those who worship the creation instead of the creator. Sexual sin, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, slander, haughty, boastful, faithless, heartless, ruth, right? Like just one over the other. And, and every, every single word that you see in Romans 1, you can imagine the high priests of Israel and the people of Israel kind of saying, amen. Like I couldn't have said it better myself. Go like keep 
uh, you know, confronting and rebuking all of those sins that all of those other people do, right? It's not talking about us. We are the people of God. We worship God. We believe in God. We have a covenant relationship with God. And in Romans 2, Paul flips it and says, You, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, right? You practice those same things and you are going to experience the judgment of God just like them. It's a little bit reminiscent of the story of uh, King David and the prophet Nathan, right? David commits adultery, takes advantage of Bathsheba, kills her husband Uriah, and in 2 Samuel 12, uh, Nathan comes to him and he tells him this story about there's a rich man who can have anything that he wants, has anything that he wants, everything that he wants, and there's a poor man who has a pet lamb. And this lamb is literally a member of their family, and they eat together and everything. And, and the rich man says, I don't want to eat one of the infinite number of sheep or cattle that I have for dinner tonight. I want to go take this man's pet lamb, rip it from his hands, kill it, and eat it for dinner. And he does. And Nathan says, what, would you, what, what do you think about that? And David's like, get him. Like, I want that guy to be thrown in jail. He deserves to be punished. And Nathan says, That's, you're the person, you're that man. I'm talking about you what Paul's doing here, kind of, uh, you know, uh, eliciting a response of, yeah, condemnation for wicked people. That's what exactly we want to hear. And now he says, you practice those same things. In fact, uh, there's an interesting parallel in the Old Testament for homework this week. Uh, Read Amos chapter 1 and 2 and kind of hold it up next to Romans chapter 1 and 2. It's very fascinating, right? Amos 1 and 2 he, the prophet does the exact same thing, right? He spends the, entire, the entirety of chapter 1 rebuking Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and saying, for all of these sins, the judgment of God is coming against you. And you can almost hear the enthusiasm of the people of Israel saying, these are all the bad guys. These are all the guys that are attacking us. These are all the people that we're having to defend our women and children against their, you know, they're pushing in against our borders. Thank you for finally telling them how it is. And then in Amos chapter 2, he says, this is what the Lord says about the sins of you, Judah, and you, Israel. You have rejected the word of God just like them. You have exploited and oppressed your neighbors just like them. God's judgment is coming on you just like them. Romans 1 is written to Gentiles saying, don't think that you're off the hook just because you're far away from God just because you didn't go to church growing up, right? It, God is still just and right and good to condemn you. And Romans 2 is the nation of Israel saying, don't think that you're off the hook because you understand yourself to be close to God, right? Because you count yourself among the people of God because you did grow up going to church. In spite of all that, you are still guilty. So he's going after the pagans, and the drunkards and the gluttons on the one hand, he's going after the priests and the Pharisees and, and the pastors on the, on the other hand, kind of establishing that we're all guilty and all deserve the wrath of, of God, right? No one is exempt. No one has the, the right to, to zone out in the, in, from these next few verses. No matter how righteous you are, you still need to pay attention. No matter how wicked and guilty you are, you still need to pay attention. He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So what is the point what is the point of and the role of God's kindness and grace and patience in our lives? It's meant to lead us to repentance. It's not it's not meant for us to presume upon it or to abuse it or to you know do whatever we right you know the 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 token sin the sin that Paul's pointing out and that he's witnessed in the nation of Israel is let us disregard the word of God and then let us presume that the wrath of God is not going to come against us because right like like I guess God's, like, God has not judged us yet, right? We've worshipped other gods, we've done other things, and then we've looked around and no judgment has come upon us. So, I guess we can safely assume that God's judgment is never going to come upon us, right? If it were, right, if God were really that mad about sin, if God were really that concerned about sin, then he would have killed us by now, right? He did it with uh, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, killed them right on the spot. He did it with Uzzah and the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 5, killed him right on the spot. So if God hasn't judged us yet, then it seems safe to assume that God is never going to judge us and we can just go on doing whatever we want. I'm a new parent. And I've learned one thing about watching kids and taking care of kids. It involves a lot of things, but the main thing, I think, that watching kids involves is setting setting up the rules, setting up the boundaries, communicating the boundaries, and then reinforcing and reiterating the boundaries over and over and over as kids continue to push against them and continue to, right? No hitting, no roughhousing, no uh, throwing the ball in the house, no running by the pool where it's slippery. You set up the rules, and if you divert your attention for 30 seconds... They're going to be pushing against the rules, kind of testing to see, is this rule really a, is this a rule or a guideline? Does he really care about this rule? Maybe, it, you know, maybe he didn't really need to, right? He said no hitting. What if I just shove a little bit? Oh, he didn't say anything when we shoved. So the shoving's in. Now, so now that we know we can shove, maybe we, let's, you know, you know let's, let's try, uh, you know, pushing and wrestling a little bit. Oh, he didn't say anything with that. So like, can I keep expanding, keep pushing the boundaries. If you turn your, you know, if you're, if you're not actively involved in actively enforcing and reinforcing and reiterating the rules, they just are quickly forgotten in, entirely, right? The human, the human heart, the human brain tends to think, all right, like one, like if, if the rules aren't being enforced, if we're not being punished for this infraction, then one of two things is true. Either the person in charge is just being nice, is being gracious. They're giving us a little bit of time and space to kind of work it out and kind of get into a rhythm of obedience. Maybe that's one thing that the grown-up is doing, or maybe he's just an idiot. Maybe the grown-up just doesn't care. Maybe he's distracted. Maybe he doesn't really uh, think that, maybe, maybe the rules aren't that important to him. And so Paul is saying, don't, like, God gives you grace. God doesn't punish you severely the first moment that you 
uh, sin against him, when he doesn't punish you, it's not because he doesn't care. It's not because he wants you to abuse the grace that he's given you and to keep pressing and to keep, you know, and, you know, sinning against him. It's because he's giving you time and space to find a rhythm of repentance and obedience. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's not meant to invite us to uh, abuse his, his grace and his patience. That's exactly what, right, that's exactly what we see happen time and time again all throughout human history, right? Rebelling against God's law and then presuming upon God's grace and presuming that judgment will never come because it has not come yet. Genesis 3, right? The serpent comes up to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And they're like, yeah, he said uh, if, we, if we eat of the tree, we will die. And what does the serpent respond back to Adam and Eve? Come on. That's not, surely you won't die. That's crazy. Don't be such a, don't be such a prude, right? You, that's, judgment's not going to come, right? The, the lie that Satan is embedding into the heart of humanity is, there's no judgment coming. What evidence do you have to believe that there's any judgment that will come if you do X, Y, and, and Z? Genesis 4, right? Cain murders his brother Abel, okay? Receives judgment. He's, uh, you know, cast out. Um, Now, a few descendants after Cain, after Cain's murder of his brother Abel, Cain has a descendant named Lamech. And Lamech is a bad guy. You can read about him in Genesis 4. He's a womanizer. He's an abuser. And he, he is a murderer too. He murders a man just like his uh, his ancestor Cain did. But when, when uh, Lamech murders a man, he doesn't just murder him and then just move on with life or try to hide it like Cain did. Lamech murders a man and then brags about it to his, to his wives. He says, I've murdered, I've murdered a man. And he says, if God's judgment was going to come on Cain, then I invite God to bring his judgment down on me tenfold, right? I want, I want, like, I I dare you to judge me, God. Cain, uh, Lamech seems to be under the impression that God's judgment's not real. God's judgment is never coming, and I'm going to scoff at it and mock it and taunt God and, and tell him, go ahead and bring your wrath on me. I'm not afraid of it, right? Rebelling against God and then doubting or dismissing the thought that maybe God's judgment is coming against it. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 5. God's rebuking the people of Israel for turning away from them. And here's what they say. Here's what God says that they say when, when he says, my judgment is coming. You say, God will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. Everything that the prophets say and all of their warnings, that's just wind. None of that is, is true. Right? In Jeremiah 5, you've got people sinning against God, and when they're warned of coming judgment by prophets, they say, no, that's, not, that's not a thing. Get out of here. I'm going to presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God. I'm not going to believe or acknowledge or interact with the reality that God's kindness is, not, is meant to lead me to repentance. One more. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, 
people's hearts are fully set to do evil. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God's people sin against him, and then when they're not judged immediately, the natural assumption is, well, I guess I won't be judged ever, and I might as well continue to abuse God's grace uh, until I am told otherwise, until I see a reason to do otherwise. But Second Peter chapter 3 tells us exactly why we should do otherwise. It says, In the last days there will come scoffers that will say, Where is this coming that God promised? For all of history, everything has gone on just as it has since the beginning of creation. Right? These scoffers deliberately forget that God judged the world with the flood. And they deliberately forget that God will judge the world again with fire. But remember... The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some would understand slowness, right? Meaning that God is not impotent to bring judgment upon his people. He can and he will. He's not slow, as you would understand slowness. Instead, what he's doing is being patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come. He's, he's, he's working out this exact thing from Romans 2, 4. God's kindness and forbearance and patience is not for us to presume upon. It's not for us to abuse. Rather, it's for us to receive, and then it's meant to lead us to repentance. Verse 5, But because your hard heart and your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's giving you time so that you can prepare for his judgment by repenting of your sin and trusting in him. You're failing to do that. You're refusing to do that. Instead, you are storing up wrath. You're not, you're not fleeing from wrath. You're storing up wrath, right? You're not exempt because you're Jewish. You're not exempt because you're a member of the nation of Israel. You're not exempt because you're religious. You're not exempt because you go to church. You're not exempt because you're from a Christian family, right? All of us will stand before God and give an answer to him for how we lived our lives. And then here's what will happen when we do that. Verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works, to those who, by patience and well-doing, seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now this is a strange verse. Because it's like, Paul, I thought the whole thing of this letter was an argument for justification by faith, an argument against justification by works. We're saved by trusting in Christ, not by good works. So what's all this? For people who exhibit good works, God will give eternal life. For people who don't, God will bring wrath and, and fury. Well, I mean, Paul's not contradicting himself. We kind of have to understand where this fits in the flow of his argument and who he's writing to and and what he is seeking to debunk and and discredit before he, like, as he's building his his argument, right? The the worldview, the preconceived notions of the people that Paul's writing to is that we are saved because we're Jewish, period. Period. 
Jews are saved, Gentiles are not, right? We're the descendants of Abraham, we're the possessors of the covenant, we're the guardians of the word of God and the law of God, we're in, they're out. We're in by virtue of us being Jewish, they're out by virtue of them not being Jewish, and that's the assumption that Paul is trying to attack here. He's trying to discredit and undermine here so that he can build his case for justification. So before he, before he uh, uh, you know, argues for justification by faith as opposed to works, he has to undermine justification by ethnicity, justification by nationality, right? Uh, I've got to get you to realize that you're not saved by virtue of being Jewish, right? Uh, prior to talking about Jesus, I have, to real, I have to help you realize that everyone, Jewish or Gentile, the only reason that you, the only way that you can be saved apart from Christ is by living a morally perfect life. And so he sets up this hypothetical situation, right? Verses 6 through 8 are kind of hypothetical to say, if hypothetically there were someone who was perfectly patient, perfectly well-doing, perfectly seeking the glory of God, perfectly seeking honor and immortality, then that person would receive eternal life. Jewish or Gentile, doesn't matter. Irrespective of their nationality and ethnicity, if they do that, then God will give them eternal life. And if someone is selfish or disobedient or unrighteous, then irrespective of their nationality and their ethnicity, they will receive wrath and, and fury. So he's saying, Jews aren't saved by being Jews. Gentiles aren't condemned because they're Gentiles. Any person, Jew or Gentile, can have eternal life if they are perfect. And any person, Jew or Gentile, will be condemned by God if they are less than perfect. Right? The only way to earn eternal life is, is through absolute perfection. Every word, every thought, every deed perfectly honoring God, worshiping God, loving your neighbor, no trace of sin or selfishness at all your entire life. And if you do that, then God will accept you into his presence. If hypothetically someone were to do that, God would accept them. They wouldn't need to be Jewish. They wouldn't need to trust in Jesus. They wouldn't need to have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to them because they would have a righteousness in and of themselves that was uh, acceptable to God. So if someone could do that, if they could live a morally perfect life, then God would accept them. Any volunteers, any takers, anyone want to be judged with that level? It's like Jesus saying, sure, yeah, by all means, let's kill this adulterous woman in John 8. But one thing, Whoever is without sin, you be the one to cast the first stone. So he's saying, sure, yeah, if, let's accept your premise that we should judge this person, but now let me throw a hypothetical back at you, which is that the only person who can and should is a sinless person and no one does. Paul's saying, yeah, by all means, anyone can be saved, Jew or Gentile. You're not saved by being Jewish, you're saved by being morally perfect. Anyone want to anyone apply for that Anyone want to, want to apply to be judged on that basis? Or are you afraid that if you do, you might actually receive wrath and fury because of your selfishness and, and disobedience? So he's, he's setting up, right? 6 through 10, Paul is saying, you're not saved by being Jewish. You're saved by being perfect, right? You're not accepted by God because you're Jewish. You're accepted by God because you're morally perfect, if hypothetically that person were to exist. And you can see in verses 9 and 10, he links Jews and Gentiles both together 
as either being saved by their perfect life and works or being condemned by their imperfect life and works. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and also for the Greek, but there will be glory and honor and immortality for everyone who does... There will be glory and honor and immortality for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. Paul's readers would have, would have said, that here's how they would have worded those two verses, right? There will be tri- tribulation and distress for everyone who is not Jewish. For all of the Greeks and all of the dirty Gentiles out there, there will be tribulation and distress. And there will be honor and glory and peace for everyone who is a member of the nation of Israel, for everyone who is safely within the bounds of of Judaism, there will be honor and glory and peace. And Paul says, no, no, there will be tribulation and distress for everyone, Jew and Gentile, who is not morally perfect. And there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone, Jew and Gentile, who is morally perfect. Tribulation and distress for everyone, Jew and Gentile, who does, does evil, right? God shows no, verse 11, God shows no partiality, right? This is, this is a, these few verses are scandalous because no one, no one likes to be told that they're not as good and not as secure and not as safe as they thought they were. And no one likes to be told that the people that they judge and look down on and see as beneath them and see as lesser and see as subhuman, no one likes to be told that they are actually in the same boat, in the same category as those people. There's a, there's a video online of a neo-Nazi, right? Like a, like a real, like a swastika flag, like tried to buy a city somewhere and make it to where only white people could, could live in it, right? Some guy like that. And he goes on a talk show, one of these talk shows where they do like paternity tests. Like, oh, like who's the, whatever. And and, a, and so he gets genetic testing. This white supremacist goes on the show and gets a 23andMe or whatever genetic testing. And they bring his results out live on the air. And they say, here's your genetic results. You're 86% white. And you're 14% black. And he's like, and he's like devastated. Whoa, like, woe is me, right? Like I, you know, I am white. I'm proud. Like my whole thing, my whole identity, I'm really proud of, of being white. I'm re- like, that's like my whole thing. And this notion that I am actually a part of the group of people that I hate, the group of people that I see as lesser than me, the idea that I'm in the same category as them, I'm in the same boat with them, there's no way that that could be true. That's, that's, there's no way that that, that is utterly impossible. And that's what Paul is saying to the nation of Israel here. He's saying, you're not as separated from, and you're not as, like, you're not as separated from the Gentiles as you thought you were. You thought there was Gentiles who receive wrath and fury, Jewish people, nation of Israel who receives glory and honor and peace. What I'm telling you is that all of you are in the boat together. All of you are going to be judged by what you do, not by the, you know, your ethnicity, not by whether or not you're a part of this particular group of people, but by what you do. Perfect people are accepted by God. Imperfect people are judged and condemned by God. Everyone, Jews and Greeks, God shows no partiality. 
So Jewish people, you're in the same boat as Gentiles. You're just as guilty and just as deserving of punishment. Religious people, you're in the same boat as secular people. You're just as guilty, just as deserving of punishment, right? People who see themselves as righteous, you're, you're in the same exact boat as those people that you look down on and see as evil and wicked and, and guilty. You're not saved by your ethnicity. You're not saved by your nationality. You're not saved because of your... Uh, denominational affiliation. You're not saved because you're a member of a church. You're not saved because uh, you, your parents were Christians or you grew up in a Christian home. You're not saved because you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, you know, checked a, threw a pine cone into the fire at summer camp when you were a kid. God shows no partiality. God does not save people on the basis of these kind of in, in inner circle and outer circle kind of things. God accepts people if they are perfect, if they embody the righteousness that God's righteousness requires God to require. The only way you can stand before God and have him accept you is to be absolutely morally perfect, do good, seek glory, honor immortality for your entire life never done anything wrong, never failed to do anything right, worshipped God perfectly, always, never worshipped anyone or anything else in place of God, loved your neighbor perfectly, never loved or prioritized yourself above your neighbor perfectly for your entire life. That's the only way that you can be accepted by God. Anyone here meet that standard? Anyone, anyone inviting, like Lamech, anyone inviting the judgment of God into their life because they think that they will hold up under that kind of, of scrutiny? Because if not, for those of us who realize and recognize that we do not embody God's perfect righteousness, I have good news for you. If you intend to, if you plan on standing before God on your own, on the basis of who you are and what you've done, then Romans 2, 1 through 11, that is your marching orders. That should be, you should memorize that and you should keep it on you your entire life because that's going to be how you are judged by God. But for everyone else, the good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. To save those of us who do evil, right? And therefore uh, deserve the tribulation and distress from God. To those of us who... Um, are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness and are therefore deserving of God's wrath and fury. Jesus came to save sinners and to seek and save the lost, right? So Jesus came, he lived among us, Jesus worshipped God perfectly. Jesus sought honor and glory and immortality perfectly. Jesus did well all of his life perfectly and was therefore deserving of eternal life. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. Jesus deserved eternal life from God. But instead of receiving eternal life, like verse 7, 
Instead of receiving glory and honor and peace like verse 10, Jesus received wrath and fury like verse 8. And he received tribulation and distress like verse 9, right? Jesus was deserving of verses 7 and 10. Jesus willingly endured verses 8 and 9 so that those of us who deserve verses 8 and 9 can be treated as if we lived the perfect life of Christ as if we deserved verses 7 and 10. Jesus, at the, at the culmination of his life, despite not being a sinner, Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner. Despite not being guilty of selfishness or unrighteousness or evil, Jesus was treated as if he was. He was beaten almost to death. He was hung on a cross. He suffered violence and humiliation and died. And he bore the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. And when he did... Jesus secured salvation for those people who would trust in him. So the the good news is that if you are not morally perfect, you can still be welcomed into the presence of God. You don't have to have a, a lifetime resume of perfect righteousness to be welcomed into the presence of God. You can come to God on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, and you can trust in him, trusting that he was punished in our place, trusting that the judgment that should be mine, he took it, and the acceptance and affirmation that rightly belonged to him, you can receive it by faith. If you want to stand before God on your own, Romans 2, 1 through 11 tells you how to do it. Your ethnicity will not help you. Your nationality will not help you. Your religious affiliation will not help you. You need to be perfect. And if you're not, then I invite you, I I plead with you to come to Jesus and to trust in him to save you because he is your only hope. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have no excuse, no excuse, ability to lay claim to salvation for ourselves. God, we have presumed upon your kindness and patience instead of repenting. And Lord, we need your grace to save us. We're not good enough. We're not spiritual enough. We're not righteous enough to meet your standard that you require and so we ask you to save us and we trust you to save us through the perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.